listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. It's good to be here again. The last time I was here, things were a bit different. I was a visitor, and now I live here and attend here. And I was given an easy text last time to talk about the joy of the Lord. And today I have to talk about suffering. So it gets, hopefully it doesn't get much harder from here. It is a lot different, though, to speak as a member of Oasis rather than as a visitor, because that means when Pastor Phil and Pastor Robbie correct me, I'll be here to hear it. <laughs> but I'm, so we're all looking forward to that. Thank you, Pastor Phil. Thank you, Pastor Robbie. In, in advance, I'll, I'll accept it with grace. So today's text from Mark's Gospel is a difficult one, but it reminds me of a funny story. And even though I think it's apropos of nothing. I want to share that story and then we'll get down to business. Several years ago, I was, I was really ill. I was in the hospital and having a series of blood transfusions. And one night, my wife had to go home to put the kids to bed. And so she had a friend of mine come to stay with me. And I'm there, I'm lying in the bed. I look over and I see that he's brought a book with him for the evening to read. And I just casually making conversation say to him, what are you reading? And he holds up Henry Nowen's Can You Drink This Cup? Now think about the situation, right? Here I am on my, what I was convinced was my deathbed, having blood transfusions, and his note of comfort was to read about whether or not he could endure the suffering. So I'm hoping you have better friends than I do if you're not well. And some of you are that friend, aren't you, right? You just cluelessly walk in with the, the book of suffering and not even realize so the, how sensitive some of us are. But that, that's actually what the text is about, is the question Jesus asked his disciples about drinking this cup. So, let's look at Mark 10. Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, that's, that's a bold opening. Imagine going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, before I ask you, I just need you to commit to me. Do whatever I ask. And he says, what is it you want? That's not necessarily how I would have responded, but Jesus, he can do anything, so he's, he's ready to hear it. What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, if you know your Gospels well, you know that Mark is protecting James and John here. Because in the other Gospel, the story is that James and John's mother came to Jesus and asked for them to have the right and left hand. Right? And Mark is so embarrassed about that detail of the story, he just brackets it out and tells us that James and John came and asked Jesus to sit at his right and left hand. Obviously, sharing the premier places of authority in Jesus' kingdom. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, we are able. Now, that's just never the right response. When God asks you a question, don't respond with, yes, I can do it. Respond with, Lord, you know, or 
I believe, help my unbelief. Never respond with, yes, I'm able. Because you're wrong, right? I'm wrong. I'm, it's not possible. But they, they do respond naively, foolishly. We are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is those for whom it has been prepared. And of course, those of us who know the end of the story know who end up at the right and the left hand of Jesus. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. Not surprisingly, right? So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. If you want to be first, you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the ways that you open up time and space for us to be with each other and to be together with you. I pray that we hear your word to us today clearly and that in your spirit we can respond boldly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are two threads threads that run all the way through Scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation that are entangled in this text. And those two threads are suffering and poor judgment. Suffering and poor judgment. They, they come to us, in, in this case, through the poor judgment of the disciples. James and John have poor judgment. They come to Jesus and they ask for places of privilege. They ask for places of authority, premier places of authority in his kingdom. And we, as readers of the text, know how foolish it is. And Jesus outright tells them, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're seeking. Your, your judgment is broken. Your, your, your vision is marred. You can't see what you think you see. You're, you're not engaged with reality. So there's poor judgment. And the way that Jesus counters their poor judgment is by immediately directing their attention to his suffering. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink this cup? You want a place near me, do you know what it means to be near me? You want a place of authority, do you know what kind of authority I have? And the only way he can teach them about the kind of authority he has and what it means to be near him is to direct their attention to the cup he has to drink, to the baptism with which he has to be baptized. So this, this poor judgment from the disciples meets Jesus' call to suffering and his promise of the cross and his call to bear our cross with him. And again, as I said already, they foolishly respond with, yes, we're ready. Yes, we're able. And then Jesus insists that they will, in fact, drink his cup. And they will, in fact, be baptized with his baptism. They will suffer what he's suffering, and they will suffer his suffering. Because there's no way to be with him and not end up where he ends up. Their, their lives are entangled with his, and his destiny is their destiny, and his fate is their fate. So there's no escaping it. If you're going to be with Jesus, you're going to end up in this place with thieves at your right and left hand. That same theme of suffering and poor judgment shows up in virtually all the texts in the lectionary this week. And you can see it, for instance, in the Job story, which we, in, the, in the lectionary this week is the end of the Job story where God speaks out of the whirlwind. And God speaks out of the whirlwind to Job in the midst of his suffering 
and Job's poor judgment and says to him, where were you when I, when I made everything? And the point being, again, that Job in the midst of his suffering still hasn't seen rightly. He's still not engaged with reality. His judgment is still poor. So this tells us that suffering in and of itself doesn't deliver you from poor judgment. Suffering is not, not good in itself. Christians do not believe in the value of suffering or in the good of suffering. We believe that suffering with Christ is transformative. But everything that's transformative is in Him, not in the suffering. If He's with you in the suffering and you're with Him in His suffering, then you are being made into His image. But by itself, suffering doesn't make you a better person or a wiser person. It doesn't make you more Christ-like. And Job's suffering hasn't made his judgment better. His, his judgment is flawed, even in the midst of his suffering. And then God reveals himself. And Job says, my eyes are open now. I can see. I understand who you are. And that same entanglement of, of themes shows up in Isaiah 53, which I want to read for you quickly. And I want you to see how, again, suffering and poor judgment are, are interwoven here. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken. Notice that phrase. We accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. We, we often miss this when we tell the gospel story. We tell the story of Jesus' death. We're so focused on what God was doing in the cross that we fail to come to terms with what was happening in the cross in terms of the people in power. Jesus was killed by a perversion of justice. God's will was for him to die, and yet it was an injustice, the greatest possible injustice. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. So again, poor judgment. We often miss this about this text, which ironically shows our poor judgment, in that there is a difference between what people think is happening to the suffering servant and what in fact is happening. He is stricken. He is crushed. It is the Lord's will for him to be in pain, but not for the reasons we imagine. We accounted him stricken by the Lord, but we were wrong. It was a perversion of justice. We were out of tune with reality. We didn't see who Jesus was. God was at work in what Jesus was doing, and yet what we were doing was wicked. I mean, this, this is the great paradox of the cross, that God's righteousness is being enacted in Jesus' death, and our unrighteousness is what brings that death about. It's our poor judgment that brings suffering to Jesus and forces upon him this death, this, this torturous death. Yes, God is at work in it, and yet it's our perversion of justice, our inability to see reality for what it is, our inability to see him for who he is, that leads us to doing this to him. 
that, in, that in, in allows us to take Jesus and torture him to death. Right? That, that poor judgment is what lies underneath all of the suffering we bring about in the world. All the suffering that we bring into anyone's life, we do because we think we know what's going on when we don't in fact know what's going on. We think we know what needs to be done when we don't in fact know what needs to be done. The people, this is one of the, the reasons that I, I respond so, with, with such kind of guttural distaste for the way that Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ plays out. Because in, which is in a great film in all kinds of ways, but one of the things that I really hate about that movie is the way it portrays the enemies of Christ. Because the enemies of Christ just let you know right up front that they are enjoying the suffering of Jesus. That they're, they're glad to see Jesus suffering in these ways. But that's not how we bring suffering into other people's lives. We always say, I don't want to do this. This is the last resort. This is not what I want. But there are no other options. That, that's how we think about what it means to bring suffering into other people's lives. That we're out of options. It's on a small scale. It's what you tell your children when you tell them, this hurts you worse than it hurts me. I've been a child. That's not quite true. But that's what we say. This hurts me worse than it hurts you. But then think about that on a grand scale. Think about that in terms of the way nation states engage each other or the way that we police one another or the way that authorities exercise, the way judges exercise their authority over people that have been accused of crimes. It's always couched in terms of I know what's best for you. And yet we rarely, if ever, do know what's best for people. And that's, that very poor judgment, that very kind of thinking we know what we're doing when we don't know what we're doing is what led us to killing Jesus. And that is the guilt that he bears. The iniquity that's laid on Jesus is not the iniquity of smoking and drinking and watching R-rated movies and playing the lottery, Pastor Phil. That's not what Jesus, that's, that's not, that's not why Jesus died. Thank God. Right? Those aren't, I mean, that's not the iniquity that's laid on him. The iniquity that's laid on him is the self-righteous judgment that all of us bring to bear in the world. That this man who is, is not only innocent, he is righteousness itself. He's not only guiltless, he is the holiness of God. We killed him because we thought we knew what holiness was. And that iniquity is what he takes upon himself. He lets himself take our self-righteousness and then exposes it. He exposes it for what it is. This is what Colossians 2 says, that when Christ is, is displayed on the cross, he exposes the principalities and powers. He makes a public spectacle of them. He shows you this is what you get when you trust your judgment. When you rely upon your own sense of what's right and your own sense of what's necessary and your own sense of reality, you end up killing Jesus and walking away self-satisfied, walking away confident that you've done what you should do. I remember when I was in college, undergraduate school, where, where I met my wife. This was before I met her. She hadn't had the chance to redeem my character at this point. I had to take... I needed one more hour to get my financial aid, and the only one hour that was available was choir. And I, I didn't want to do choir, but I had to do it to get financial aid, and so I did choir, and I hated the choir director, Mr. Irway. I hope he never hears this. <laughs> Mr. Irway was, he was just, you ever met somebody that just exudes arrogance? And 
for whatever reason, it just made me angry. I'm 16 years old at the time, but I was deeply offended by Mr. Irway. But it was a Bible school. It was a Bible school, and so somewhere along the line, we had a revival service, and somewhere in that revival, the preacher talked about the way you've wronged other people, and you need to make it right. Leave your gift at the altar and go to that person. So here I am, all of a sudden, I'm crushed with guilt because I know that I've had all of these evil thoughts to Mr. Irway while we're singing in choir. So I go up to him in the, in the altar service of that Bible school chapel, and I say, Mr. Irway, you don't know who I am, but I, I want you to know I really don't like you. And the Lord is convicting me, and I just, I just want to say that I'm sorry, that, that I don't like you. That's not fair. And I've talked bad about you, and other people have talked bad about you, and we shouldn't have done that. Right. And then I walked away feeling like I had done the right thing. And like five years later, after Julie was in my life, it hit me. Wait a minute. I did more wrong to him in my confession than I had ever done before. Mr. Irway was happily ignorant of my existence until I forced myself onto him with my confession of sin. Right? And I was the arrogant one. But I was convinced he was the one in the wrong and that I had enough humility that I would do what the Lord told me to do when the Lord told me to do it. Now, just take that and magnify it. That's what's wrong with our world. We're all going up to our Mr. Irways and saying, thinking we're doing the Lord's will, I don't like you, and people are talking bad about you, but I just want to let you know that I've repented of that. And then we walk away feeling sure that we're in the Lord's will and still looking down our noses at the person we've sinned against. I mean, the, the tragedy of that story is not just that I, at worst, brought some hurt into Mr. Irwin's life. I'm sure he didn't care one way or another, but, but it's not that. It's that I had always looked down upon him, and now I had the approval of the presence of God on that, on that kind of condescension. Now I knew I was in the Lord's will to look at him in that way. And that, that poor judgment, it did little damage to Mr. Irway. But that's how we damage people seriously. And again, whether we're talking globally, internationally, nationally, locally, personally, in our families, that's how we damage people. We come to them from this place of self-righteousness and self-confidence that we know what our judgment is and we bring that to bear on them and walk away satisfied not realizing that we have not seen clearly. We're not in tune with reality. And our poor judgment bears enormous consequences. And what I want to suggest, and this is something that the pastors can correct later, but what I want to suggest that, and, and I'm sure they will, but this, this is what is destroying our communities. It's, it's poor judgment. That behind all of our gossip and all of our hateful comments, behind all of, all, of, all of the rhetoric you see on Facebook and the social media, behind all the betrayal and envy, behind all of that is just the inability to see reality for what it is. It's just the inability to judge rightly, to see the innocent as innocent and the guilty as guilty and to know what to do with that. We, we are so out of tune with reality and don't know it. And therefore, our judgments are constantly broken. And out of those broken judgments come all kinds of suffering for us and for others. And what that means is it makes room for evil to work. I mean, Satan is better at his job than we give him credit for. He's a deceiver. 
And it's much more effective for him to use someone who thinks they're doing, doing the Lord's will when in fact they're not than it is for, to use someone who's obviously out of the will of the Lord. The enemy's most powerful works, his most impressive accomplishments are when he convinces us that we're doing right when in fact we're doing wrong. Convinces us that we're bringing peace when in fact we're bringing judgment and, and bringing unnecessary correction and difficulty in other people's lives. Convinces us that we are the ones in the right when in fact we're the ones doing the wrong. That's, that's his greatest accomplishment. And he accomplishes that over and over and over and over again. Ways in which we continually make room for evil to work. And at the same time, suffocate the work of the Spirit in our life. Snuff out the work of the Spirit by those bad judgments. Every time I act from that place of judgment, I'm quenching the Spirit. I'm grieving the Spirit. I'm making it so that the Spirit's room is narrowed down and the room for evil to work is opened up. And again, this is true at every level. This is, this is not just about you and me personally and you and me and our families or you and me and this community. This is what's happening globally. This is what's happening internationally. This is what happens in our nation right now. Just a couple weeks ago, I was reading Hannah Arendt's totalitarianism book. And in it, she says this. And I want you to listen to what she says about judgment. If everybody always lies to you, the consequence, and we all know that everybody's lying to us. I mean, think about what happened when we went through the Kavanaugh debacle. We all knew everybody was lying to us, except for maybe one or two people. We all knew it. Everybody knew it. But when everybody lies to you, she says, it's not that you believe the lies. It's that nobody believes anything anymore. You know it's a lie, so you don't believe it, but you don't know what to believe. And a people that can no longer believe anything cannot make up its mind. It is deprived not only of its capacity to act, but also of its capacity to judge. And with such a people, you can do whatever you please. People who lose the ability to make good judgments are utterly manipulatable. And you won't know you're being manipulated. And so when I'm talking about this problem of bad judgment, I'm not just talking about your problem of judgment in your life with your wife or your kids or your friends or your neighbors or your pastors or me. I, I, we're talking about this is what's afflicting our world. And we're all subjected to lie after lie after lie. And what's happening is not that we believe the lies, but that we don't know what to believe about anything. And in the process, our judgment, which is already broken by sin, is being further and further and further and further eroded. And then... We are wide open to manipulation, not just by politicians, although that's true too, but by our enemy, by, by, by evil itself. That's what's manipulating us. As Paul will say, we're not, we're not against flesh and blood. This is not a battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And they are the ones manipulating us. Manipulating us precisely in that they've convinced us we're doing right when in fact we're bringing destruction on people's lives. And that is what's going on in the gospel text. And I'm almost done. Whether I want to be or not, I'm almost done. Because... The same poor judgment that leads these disciples to ask for positions of authority is the poor judgment that kills Jesus in the end. 
Because it's, it's poor judgment about what power is and what weakness is. And that poor judgment, as I've said already, I think is at the root of everything. It's at the root of everything. The reason the love of money is the root of all evil is because the love of money reveals that you don't know what reality is. You don't know how reality works. It's poor judgment. Right? Solomon, the wisest, richest man who ever lived, his life is a wreck. And when Pastor Phil says, if you win the billion-dollar lottery, it's the worst thing that happened to you, he's not just blowing smoke. Because it's, that's not reality. And that sense of power that money gives you is an illusion that opens you up to manipulation. And Christians are people who are trying to let the Lord save us from our illusions. That's, that's what's happening in this, in this gospel text. So Jesus is trying to save these two young men from their own sense of judgment. And what he does is astonishing. Now when we tell this story, we often mock, and this is why the other disciples were angry, we often mock James and John for wanting positions of authority. As if the right thing would have been for them to say, we just want to serve you, Jesus. But that's not the point of the gospel passage. They do want to serve Jesus. Notice, they don't say, we want a Lord over you. They, they say, we want to be at your right and left hand. They can only imagine themselves in power by imagining themselves in relationship to Jesus, by imagining themselves in submission to Jesus. And don't we talk like that all the time? As if the goal of the Christian life is to get so submitted to Jesus that his power comes through you? I mean, I've heard that sermon more than once in my life. That the point is submit to him, become his servant, and then he will be Lord for you and through you, and you can have power over all your circumstances, except that's the lie. He's not going to lord it over you. And you don't get power by being submitted to Jesus. You don't get power by being a servant to Jesus. Notice what Jesus says to them. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Now, this is, this is hard to hear. It's hard for me to hear. It's hard for me to even know how to say it. But in Christ, what we see is that God becomes like a slave because that's the only way to save us from the slavery to power that we have. Which means he doesn't have the power we think he has. He has a different kind of power. He has all of that other kind of power, but he doesn't have any of the power we think he has. The problem with James and John is not just that they want to be in positions of prestige. It's that they think Jesus has a kind of power he does not have. He doesn't have it because it's an illusion. The power of coercion and violence, the power of the sword is an illusion. And Jesus doesn't have that power. What he has is the power of the cup and the power of the towel. He doesn't have the power of the sword because it's an illusion. That's the enemy's weapon. What he has is the power of a cup that he drinks to its dregs. And what he has is the power of a towel. We're all of us, I think all of us, are exactly where Peter was the night of the foot washing. You remember this story? Jesus says he's going to wash their feet. And Peter, mouthy Peter, what does he say? No, you can't wash my feet. I'm supposed to wash your feet. That's exactly what John the Baptist said when Jesus came to him about water baptism. 
What does John say? No, no, no. I'm supposed to baptize you because at the heart of all of our sin is this belief that we know how power relations work and that Jesus should be over us and we should be submitted to him. And if we're submitted to him, then other people will have to be submitted to us. And that's the lie. It's not that he wants us to serve him. He came to serve us. He wants us to baptize him. He wants to be able to wash our feet. That's his power. So here's, here's the adjustment. We have to go from thinking that the point of life is to serve God so his power will work through us to realizing that the only power he has to give is the power that comes when we let him serve us. When we let him be the servant of all. God makes himself a slave because that's the only way to deliver us from the slavery we're in to power. And so I end with this. As I said already, we know who end up who ends up at Jesus' right and left hand. Thieves do. Our God is a God who doesn't put disciples at his right and left hand. He puts thieves at his right and left hand. Because as long as we think of ourselves as quote unquote disciples, we still think we know how the system works. I stay submitted to Jesus. I do the Lord's will. I keep faithful to God. And what comes into my life is, are all of these blessings. What comes to my life are all of these riches. All of this power flows through me. I just heard a sermon not, not long ago at all about this very theme in which the preacher said, if we are submitted to Jesus the way that Jesus was submitted to the Father, we will have all the power that Jesus had. And that's when it hit me. That's the lie we keep believing. We think if we can just live close enough to God that there will be a certain kind of power that will come into our life that will keep us from all of these things. And it's in this Psalm 91 text this week. There's a passage in Psalm 91 that says, A thousand may fall at your left hand and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. And there's a way of reading that, God, that, that psalm that says if you'll just serve God, if you'll just get submitted to him, if you'll stay close to Jesus, everybody around you may be hurt, but you won't be. Other families may break up, but yours won't. Other people may go bankrupt, but you won't. Other people may have, may have a nervous breakdown, but you won't. But what you see when you read that psalm through the Gospels is that Jesus not only has people dying at his right and left hand, he dies their death with them. The God we serve is not a God who gives us power so that though people fall at our right and left hand, we don't. The God we serve is a God who gives us power to die with those who are dying at our right and left hand. The power our God has infinitely, he has all power, the power he has is the power to enter into suffering all the way to its depths. All the way to its depths. Not just about the suffering you're experiencing in your life, but the suffering of the people next to you. Do you notice in the video, there's a hilarious line right at the end that says that these children were wonderfully oblivious to the suffering. And I'm glad for those kids. But I'm afraid some of us are wonderfully oblivious to the suffering of everybody else. But to be in the spirit is to be attuned to reality. It's to be attuned to reality. 
Nicholas of Cusa, a medieval theologian, said that Jesus' humanity was so full that he could tell by the expression on people's faces all the pain that was in their heart. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. To walk into a room and see the pain in people's eyes and know how to engage them humanly. The power we have is the power of a towel and the power of a cup. That's all we have, but it's all we need. It's all we have, but it's all we need. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.